You're going to remember this every day for the rest of your life. If you want to get to a goal, if you want to get to your dream, you've got to focus on all the little steps. You have to put in your time. You have to be patient and you have to enjoy the process. Whatever you're doing now, whatever you want to be great at, whatever you want to be special at, I'm sure you, you may be already be good at it, but to be extraordinary, you have to do extra. I firmly believe that we are all here for a very specific reason, to do something truly extraordinary. But what are you going to do to get there? Welcome to the Megna Method Podcast. As you can probably already tell by now, this is not Mark Megna. Uh, my name is Louis Barone, and I'm going to be your special host today. And on the hot seat is going to be yours truly, Mr. Mark Megna. Welcome to your podcast. <laughs> it's great to be here once again on the uh, other end of the questions. I am nervous, but I'm going to give it the old college try. Yeah, no worries. Just take a deep breath. You're going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I feel pretty good. All right, Mark. So we've got a long list of things to go through. I know that your fans are probably excited to get to know more about you. And um, since, you know, you're kind of a busy guy, there's a lot of things that we got to run through, a lot of things we want to find out about you, um, kind of going through your timeline, just like you do with any other guest and um, just kind of figure out more about you. So let's go ahead and start off the same way you would with anybody else on your show. Tell us a little bit about your early childhood and what your upbringing was like. My early childhood was actually, you know, a lot of fun. Um, My brother and I were raised by my mother. Um, We grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, blue-collar town, uh, a place that I grew up uh, loving. I liked it very much, and, you know, as a young boy, Honestly, everything was um, made fun by my mother. My mother, Pauline Magna, was a very special person. She did an outstanding job raising my brother and myself. My father was around um, till I was about six years old. My parents divorced when I was six. Things uh, certainly changed, but because I had a superhero mom, it really... Uh, my mother was just incredible. I, you know, I'm going to say this a lot during the show, but when my father left, it didn't affect me very much because my, um, I was very young, but my brother was at that age. I was six, my brother was nine, and he really needed a father figure, and that was kind of tough uh, for him. It was tough uh, getting a new um, lifestyle. We, we lived with my um, grandparents for a little bit, and then we settled down into an apartment, Things uh, were certainly challenging, but I will tell you that I had my own struggles, personal struggles, but being watching someone like my mother um, make the best of everything. Like, listen, there were certainly moments that she would cry, and it, it was hard. Um, my mother, more than anything, wanted a strong uh, family experience for my brother and myself, and when that was no longer... Um, set in a traditional way with a mother and a father. My mother went out of her way to make sure it could get as close as possible to that, and she did a great job. Really, she did a great job. But as far as my myself, I was a <laughs> uh, short, chubby, insecure, very self-conscious uh, introvert who really was did not have uh, the most confidence, and and that's the. That, that's the God's honest truth. I struggled a great deal, but 
I was like struggling to find myself. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know if I liked sports and I, I liked the idea of sports, but I was a, wasn't a very good athlete, but I had this idea in my head that maybe someday I could be. So instead of, it's like all the kids nowadays, instead of playing the sports, I visualized and I would daydream about it, but I wouldn't go out and do it because of lack of failure or being made fun of by the, the other kids, right? So I just kind of stood by and I, I would be the coach or just watch the other kids play. And I was okay with that because being in a safe place was better than taking that step and failing, right? Yeah. So that more or less was me at a very young age until my mother changed things for me a little bit later on. Okay. You know, I ask you that question because it follows the theme of, you know, how your podcast goes. But, you know, following you on social media, I noticed that you, you reflect back a lot to your childhood and you use that as a way to motivate your followers. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I, when I started u- using social media, social media for me was different than what it is today. I started uh, with a positive message in the morning. That message wasn't meant for anyone but myself. I was trying to motivate myself and I was trying to turn my life around from what I thought was a bit of a failure after I had stopped playing professional sports. And after playing professional sports, I was, um, I hurt my back badly and I couldn't move for a period of time. My uh, lower body, my legs were, uh, I wasn't really functioning properly and I had to rehab myself. It took me almost a year to get back to functioning properly after uh, that injury. And I was really down. I was certainly depressed. I didn't know it, but I was depressed. And uh, people ask me now, how did I know I was depressed? And my answer is I didn't. But then when I started to reflect on my behavior, I realized, wow, that wasn't healthy. And let me explain. So when football ends, you have to uh, make that adjustment where you, what I want to say, acclimate yourself to society maybe. Mm -hmm. And football takes up, is a full-time job and then some. It's highly active, there's conditioning, there's running, there's weights, there's film study, there's practice. So what I did was I made myself a mock fitness camp after football where I would wake up every morning, I would swim for an hour, an hour and a half, I would run four to five miles, I would lift weights for an hour, I would have lunch, then I'd go back and I'd do a boxing class, a Muay Thai class, a kickboxing class, lift weights again, and I did it every day for about six months. Mm. And my body weight went from 240 pounds to about 188 pounds. It had nothing to do with being healthy. It wasn't positive. It was incredibly negative. I was stressed and I didn't know it, and I was scared because now I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. So going back to social media, I said, you know what I'm going to do? Every morning I'm going to write a positive message. And people started to thank me on the timeline and in messages saying, I appreciate your positive attitude. I love your positive positive attitude. And I laughed because I didn't have a positive attitude. I was very negative and I was trying to turn it around. So I started with me. And it's something I believe to this day. In order to help other people, you first have to help yourself. 
and I really needed to find myself uh, in a better place. I need to find myself um, behaving better, if you will, and just having a healthier lifestyle, which is balance and feeling better about my choices and fitness and wellness and just being okay with not playing anymore. And that was really hard for me at first because I had played football since the time I was almost seven years old, six, seven years old, till I was, I don't know, 31 years old. And that was really hard for me. So I, I was figuring out what I was going to do. So how did, how did fitness work as a replacement for being a professional athlete, you know, playing at the elite level? It doesn't. Uh, it really hence why you yeah, tried more and yeah, more of it. Uh, exactly. You know, I think that most people they 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 when they train and and they're they're feeling good about training and they have a great workout and we know most of us understand the positive benefits that come along with training is if it's the um, the serotonin, the endorphins the positive feelings, the blood flow, the joint health, cognitive function, as yeah. we talked about earlier. Yeah. Sure. There's just so many great things associated with that. And you really believe that you can replicate the feelings and the emotions that you have on the field. And that's the biggest lie yeah. ever. There's no way you'll ever be able to feel like that. Now, you can feel great things. You can feel special things. You can feel things that are extraordinary to you, but they'll never be like that, mm -hmm. which is okay. But it's all about coming to terms with understanding that, accept, accepting that, excuse me, and moving forward, right? Yeah. So I, what I would do is fitness became something that balanced me. Training, I didn't have to kill it every day. I just had to keep my body healthy because I believe that everyone's goal in fitness and wellness at the end of the day should be longevity. And I had this conversation with the training team earlier. When someone's trying to be a great high school player, when someone's trying to be a great college or a professional player, they have one very specific intention. Optimal performance. Be the fastest, the strongest, the best athlete out there. That doesn't mean they're healthy. That doesn't mean they're healthy at all. As a matter of fact, many of the athletes I played with, if they were 6'5", 290 pounds, and they could run and they could move, they weren't healthy at all. If you ran blood work on them, they'd be incredibly unhealthy, but they'd be great players. Yeah. But that was his intention. Now I think there is uh, some mixing of athletes understanding that I can do this, be optimal, and be healthy at the same time. And that's becoming more of a theme with today's athletes. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Earlier when we were talking offline, you and I, we were talking about the book Spark by uh, John J. Ratty. And they, they present a lot of information and research based on um, what they've done in studies with rats and with exercise and et cetera. And one of the terms they mentioned in the book was a stress junkie. You know, someone who over-exercises, over-challenges themselves, so to speak. Um, how do you think you being a professional athlete, being under that level of stress of being a part of the 1% that make it into, you know, professional athletics, how do you think that played into that? Would you agree to that term? Would you say that that could be possibly what you were going through? And then how'd you break free from that? 
So that's kind of a loaded question. Right. So I completely, I think I absolutely fall into the category of a stress junkie. I feel like you, you almost, you absolutely fall into this mindset of you have to earn your day by smashing yourself down or putting yourself in high stress situations so you can simulate that sort of lifestyle that you no longer have. And listeners may think that's absolutely ludicrous. That's crazy. Why would I do that to myself? But that's, it's like being in a relationship. Most people or I shouldn't say most people, but have you ever heard of a friend or someone you know in a terrible relationship or a bad relationship, but they can't end the relationship? They're in the relationship because even a bad relationship gives them some sense of security. Even those high stress situations give you some sense of identity. And that's who you feel you are. And that's what you've lived your entire life. So you feel you have to almost live your life like you're a commando. Like, get up crazy early. Sound familiar? (laughs) Uh, Work 16 hours. Sleep 4 hours set crazy high goals and not stop or settle until you achieve those you almost brainwash yourself to think that's the only way to live and that's the only way you will uh, find your self-worth but you have to it's like we talk about peeling the onion back and there's several layers there you have to figure out why you're doing what the hell you're doing and does it matter and is it worth sacrificing my health and can I achieve those dreams and goals in a healthy way because then that would be okay right or that would be better there would be a better lifestyle so you have to figure out what you're doing why you're doing it what the significance is and are you falling into the category of being a stress junkie because if you are stress as we all know is not optimal high levels of stress are not optimal at times they can serve a high purpose but not 24 7 right right so we have to figure out what's important to us and how much stress are we actually under yeah at some point you got to realize there's no lion chasing you you can relax yeah exactly (laughs) you may think so yeah so let's let's go into um let's go into the next piece uh, which i think is is important for for your listeners is Moving through that transition of, you know, having a tough upbringing, just you, your mom and your brother, um, you know, and obviously you had friends and family involved. Were there, was there anybody else um, that was highly involved with you? Because I know you talk about, you talk about your brother and how that was a tough time for him and it was, it was difficult where he needed a father figure, but that Mike is also your, Mike is your, obviously your brother, but he's also your older brother. So what did that feel like for you as a younger brother? kind of obviously you were aware of Mike's situation and you cared for him what was that like who took care of you or were you guys able to kind of take care of each other you know my brother and I uh, we we battled growing up Uh, we battled a lot growing up but my brother always looked out for me my brother's one of those kids that was he would do things that you know weren't the best decisions but at the end of the day, he always looked out for my mother and myself, and he he has a very big heart. But I think his reaction and the way he acted when he was growing up is because you know, when your family falls apart and 
you know, your father's no longer around and then your father doesn't want to be around and he wants nothing to do with his kids. Well, that can be a problem for kids. They think it's their fault and they struggle. And there's a lot of, um, they carry around, they feel like it's their fault. And that was certainly hard. Um, I think more than anything, my brother really really wanted someone to be there for him and and the people that were there for him my grandmother who was an incredible woman i don't think she's ever been angry a day in her life uh she's a, she just passed away last year 99 years old sorry to hear that no it's okay and but an amazing woman she cooked us pasta three times a day <laughs> she was the most loving kind person you've ever met my grandfather was incredibly tough like he was the gestapo like super super tough old man who everyone feared in our family i mean they were there for us my mother pretty much dropped us off and worked like three jobs and my grandparents took care of us we had a bunch of people jumping in to trying to help try and help uh, my brother and i my aunts uncles my grandmother had uh, 11 brothers and sisters wow so my Uncle Gus, my Uncle Tony, my Uncle Andy, uh, my Aunt Josephine, uh, my Aunt Diane. I mean, there was so many, so many, and they all wanted to help. We had a really great family. So my mother wasn't around. Family jumped in. But I always exp- tell the story that, you know, my father wasn't around, but there were tons of men that jumped in, like from, you know, coaches my high school football coach, uh, the assistant principal in my high school, Vincent Fitzgerald, who was like a father to me and did everything to keep me out of trouble. And every time he saw me hanging around kids who were trouble, he'd pull me out of the group and say, you don't belong with them, you're not like them, smart enough, they're not your friends. Had he not stepped in to do that, I wouldn't even be here, hmm. really. Because the kids I hung out with, of all the kids I hung out with, they were great kids great kids they just struggled with alcohol or drugs and all of them all of them have an issue yeah all of them with the exception of one 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 kid named jeff who was actually uh is the athletic director at a local high school who's also a good friend of mine but so many people jumped in and uh vincent vincent fitzgerald was the gentleman in high school that he pulled me out of the group and he said, what are you doing hanging out with those kids? And I said, those kids are my friends. And he stopped, looked, looked me dead in the eye and said, why do you think those kids are your friends? And I said, well, they're my friends because I hang out with them. He said, well, what do you do when you hang out with them? I said, you know, we do, we, we do things. And I didn't want to tell him because I was embarrassed. I mean, we were right. stealing tobacco, chewing tobacco from stores, convenience stores and grocery stores. We were, they were drinking beers. I was drinking beers. They were drinking alcohol. We were doing things that we weren't supposed to be doing at a very, very young age. And I thought it was cool because I was with my friends. He pulled me out of those groups, made me sit in his office. And when I was playing uh, high school football, he made sure I was doing my homework in his office. He made sure I was doing my running. And I was doing those things on my own. But every once in a while, i say, you know, I can't do my running because... Where am I going to do it? I need to go on the track. There's no lights in the track. I never forget. I mean, he, he, people help others who want to help themselves. And he saw that I really wanted to do things. So I remember one time he took me up on the track. It was like 7.30 at night. It was dark out. He turns the, opens the track. He has the keys on his belt. He opens the gate to the track. 
drives his car up on the track, turns his lights on, he follows me around the track as I do my running. So if I have to do sprints, he puts the lights on, I go down and back. If I have to do the thing, he drives around the track in his big car and follows me. And I had a bunch of people like that jumping in, helping me out, going out of their way, who were not getting paid to do it. They were just constantly contributing to my life and just helping me out. And I have no idea why they did it, but they did, and thank God they did, because I, once again, I wouldn't be here. And that was in high school? That was in high school. What year was that? That was... Was that your junior year? 91, 92. Long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I should have went with you, but you said freshman and junior. Yeah. <laughs> I brought the dates into it. But, um, I mean, I skipped over the, you know, middle school and things like that. We can certainly talk about that if you'd like. No, the reason I ask is I want to see where the conversation. So in that in that time frame, especially in high school, that's a you know, that's like a peak developmental phase for for kids where that kind of shapes them for the next, let's say, 10 years. And it's really based on your environment, right? And the people around you, the things that you see. When did you get serious? You know, was that a thing where people were going to college? People were going out and playing sports in your town. You know, that was you saw a lot of athletes come out of your town or no, you know, that's what I want to I kind of want to see is when did you get serious or when did you consider that you could ask, you could possibly go to college? Well, I never uh, I never even had a goal to go to college um, early on. So I'll go back to middle school in middle school. I was still, uh, you know, chubby, roly poly young person. And I just for some reason I developed this obsession with sports. And I think mo- a lot of young men do. Really, I do. And I don't know why, but I liked information. Okay? So if I get a magazine of Sports Illustrated, I would open up the magazine, and I would just devour that information. And it was very specific information. Stories, right? Associations with athletes. Uh, difficult times with athletes. Heights. Weights. Where they came from. Where they are now. What made them great. And I was just learning all this. And I could remember retain so much information so whenever I got a magazine I would rip the pictures out and I would put the pictures almost like a uh, a giant mural all over my wall so you couldn't see the wall it was completely covered with athletes it was mostly football but I had basketball players on there baseball players on there just great well-known athletes who have worked incredibly hard over a lifetime to achieve success and get what they are get where they are and I remember I was sitting out front and a woman uh, that lived next door, her name was Mrs. Barney, I believe. She saw me reading a magazine. She said, hey, Mark, do you like sports? I said, I love sports. She said, do you play sports? I said, no, not really, because I played Little League and things like that, but I was just, I was at the bench. I didn't really play that much. I was just happy to be there, be a part of it. And she says, oh, well, I can get you some more of those magazines. I said, really? That'd be great. So she says, yeah, I'll bring them by. I'll bring them by this week. So she was going to bring me by some magazines. I didn't understand what she meant by that. So I was developing this love for sports through video. Okay, I'll go back to the magazine thing in a second. My mother knew that she was going to be working an extra job. Okay, so at the time she was going to start to take on another job aside from her day job. She was cleaning houses or offices. And her friend gave her a used VCR to borrow. And with that, all these video VHS tapes for the VCR 
and I sorted through it. They were like movies, romantic movies, comedies. I had no interest in any of those movies, and that's actually where my love for movies started as well. Excuse me. And at the bottom of the box, there were like four VHS tapes. One was like Crunch Course, Crunch Time, Big Hits, Blocks, and Tackles of the NFL. And there was one more, like an NFL documentary. And I must have watched those clip, those videos thousands of times. Like, I can, right now, I can recite all the words to the intros of the person narrating it. I knew the pass rush moves, the tackles, how to punch a ball out, and I hadn't even played yet, okay? So I was obsessed with that so much that my mother would say, Mark, you're watching the same one again? Like, she knew I would watch the same one. And I'm watching guys like Dick, Buck, Dick Budkiss, Lawrence Taylor, Andre Tippett, Mike Singletary, and I'm just obsessed with these guys and everything from their stance, the way they taped their ankles, their hands, the kind of pads they wore, how big they were, how snug the pads were to their shoulders so they can move and run faster. I knew this stuff cold, right? <laughs> wow. I mean, it was sick. So even the way they would adjust their pads after they made a big tackle in, more, in an arrogant way, really, and how they would celebrate. I remember, I'll never forget it, Andre Tippett, and it's in my prep speech for my next big speech that we discuss. Andre Tippett made a tackle, and he grabbed the guy with his left hand, pushed him into the ground with his left hand, and as the guy was going down, he was throwing his right arm up to celebrate, pointing to this guy like I'm number one. And I thought it was cool because Andre Tippett did. I didn't really know what it meant. Right. So a few days later, going back to the one with the magazines, I'm doing all the VHS work. Like I'm, I'm watching film. I didn't realize it, but I'm probably already watching 10,000 hours of film. I mean, I'm just crushing this stuff. That's all I do. I hear a giant thud in the back door to our apartment in President Village. It was the housing development. And a woman, the Mrs. Barney, had dumped a giant trash bag of magazines in the door, between the screen door and the wood door. And when I opened the wood door, all the magazines fell in. <laughs> I mean, there were hundreds of magazines. Football, uh, sporting news, anthem, college football preview, Sports Illustrated, every magazine that you could possibly think of that was a sports magazine was in my door. It was like I hit the lottery. <laughs> Turns out Mrs. Barney worked at a uh, factory where all the magazines for the newsstands come across this belt. So she was just grabbing them, pulling them off this belt, putting them in a bag for this kid in, in President nice. Village. So I was like the happiest person. I put them, I, I took them all in my arms, like made several trips to the bedroom. I put them all in stacks on the floor. I had football magazines, baseball magazines, college magazines, college football previews, everything. And man, I was, I was like, oh man, I love these pictures. The athletes, they look sick, they're so fit, they're amazing. I start to learn conferences and independence, Notre Dame, Michigan, Tony Mandridge, Tony Rice, all these crazy athletes back in the day, Rocket Ismail, and I started to memorize everything. At one point, I knew the entire University of Notre Dame roster, heights and weights and where they were from. Wow. And this isn't like 20 years old. This is, I'm um, probably at the time, 10, wow. 10 years old, and I knew all that information. So I ripped all those ma pictures out of the magazine, I put them all over my wall, and my mother was very upset, to say the least, because I ruined the wall, and I put all these like little, not nails, but like pins to hold right. the pictures down. And every time, and this is interesting because there's many things, I did this with many things in my life, I put it on my wall. So when I went to bed, I told my mother, I said, when I lay down, I want to stare at that. And when I wake up, I want to see it again. And I said that at like 10. I didn't know why. See, I yeah. just loved it. And I had this thing inside me that I wanted to see it. When I went to bed, 
all I would picture is myself being like these athletes. And I was just this fat, roly-poly kid, yeah. but I had this vision of what I wanted to be like. And I was going to beat myself into this guy who I envisioned in my head. So, and there's a lot of things that I pinned to a wall later on in life. Sayings, quotes, things that I wanted to really have in my mind before I went to bed and when I woke up. And this was the start of it. So, that's how it really started. And that's how I got maybe 10,000 hours in magazines and VHS and studying before I'd ever even put the pads on. Wow. Yeah, you sound like a true social butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you were out there just mingling with everybody. Uh, no, seriously, though, how do you think that developed? Was Were you not allowed out of the house, or were you were just that curious about sports and the things that were coming to you that you were just driven to just you know, spend your time visualizing, studying those things, and really going all in there? I think a little bit of both. I was so... I was kind of developing this obsession with sports, and... I was shy to begin with. Socially, I was very shy to begin with. So a combination of those two things didn't really motivate me to get out of the house. So if there was ever an opportunity to go out and hang with these kids who I weren't sure how they were going to treat me, I think, you know, my father at a very young age, and I talk about this a lot, because, you know, it felt when you're a kid growing up and your father, you figure out your father wants nothing to do with you, that leaves a very uh, serious mark on your heart, so to speak. So you think, man, I, I, I'm I, not sure how all these people are going to treat me. They might be, you know, be friends with me for mm-hmm. a second, then bounce. So I, I was very slow to develop relationships with people going forward from that, mm-hmm. not knowing it. I'm right. looking back like now, it's very loss, easy. Right. Yeah, afraid of loss. So now, I mean, I still plays a role in my life, obviously, but... Um, that didn't make me exactly exactly social, so yeah. I would always uh, defer to yeah. hang in the house. You, you know, know it's it's interesting. A lot of psychology studies say that people they they fear losing, so they would they would do more, put in more effort in fear of losing something than putting effort into gaining something. That's right. So that's 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 pretty interesting how that worked out for you. Absolutely. So now you're going to Richmond. How do you find out? Um, you know who was a part of that? Who helped you with that? Uh, what was the response like in the town? And then what were, what was your mindset moving from you know the place where you grew up? I think a lot of kids actually went. Well, not a lot, but there were certainly kids from my area going to play college sports. I certainly wasn't the first one. I think I was the first one going to play what I would say Division 1A or Division 1AA college football that I knew of anyway. There may have been more that I don't know of, but well, actually, there was a kid named Chris Resendiz who went to Harvard wow. from my high school. <laughs> he was actually a very good player. Wow. A very fast player. I don't know. But he, he's actually a great guy. But Anyway, um, Richmond was so playing freshman football. I was playing freshman football at Durfee High School, and that coach that came in, he's actually going to be here tomorrow in wow. Miami. It's very interesting. He's going to be here tomorrow visiting for the morning. But Coach Bogan took three three freshman football players, Kevin Costa, Peter Sonneson, and Mark Magnet, and put them on the varsity team. And I know what he was doing. He was trying to acclimate these young people to that high level early. 
we certainly weren't ready for it. I mean, I remember my first game playing varsity football was against Brockton High School. They were the number one team in the United States. And they were crushing people. Brockton, Massachusetts, it's Brockton High School, played at Rocky Marciano Stadium. Everything about them was tough. I mean, they had defensive ends that were 6'3", 260 pounds. The three running backs were going Division One. They were incredible. They were tough street kids. They were just awesome. I think they beat us 53 to nothing my wow. freshman year. And I played in that game and got beat down every single snap. And I remember thinking, I don't, if it's going to be like this for four years, <laughs> I don't even know what I'm going to do. But I realized that's pretty much what it's like for every freshman. I mean, you're a 14-year-old kid. You're playing against 17 or 18-year-olds. years old, 18 year olds, And there's a significant difference in development. So when I played varsity... You know, I would get beat down. When I played freshman football, I was like a superstar. I mean, I would make 10, 20 right. tackles a game. I would do anything I wanted. It was like I was playing <laughs> with little kids. So my sophomore year, I came back, and I was starting at a defensive end with a bunch of other kids. Uh, there was a rotation, myself, Kenny Mike Sanders, and Jason Cummings, who was a very close friend. Um, and I was playing, and I started to actually learn how to play, and I started to make a few plays. And then when I came back as a junior, then I really knew what I was doing. Right? And when I say know what I was doing, I knew nothing about reading offenses. I mean nothing. But I was active, and I was physical, and I was making plays, and I was hustling, and I was working hard. I wasn't good. I'm not joking. I'm not even being humble. I wasn't good. This isn't self-deprecating things. I just wasn't. <laughs> Come my, I mean, I wasn't even a uh, conference all-star as a junior. I wasn't. But my senior year... I was kind of pissed off, and I was like, you know what? I don't even care. I'm just going out there and playing. And my coach, Bob Bogan, moved me from defensive end to inside linebacker, and I was upset. I was like, crush. He said, you're going to play inside linebacker. I said, why? I'm like, defensive end. And I love playing defensive end because I like, you know, Lawrence Taylor was an outside linebacker, but he was kind of like a pass rush end. I love Willie McGinnis, Chris Slay, all these guys. Like, I love these guys. And um, it's funny because my hero was like Howie Long. And Howie Long was defensive end. And I just moved to middle linebacker. And I'm like, I don't know if I can play middle linebacker. That's a lot different. And I don't know if I have the skills to play. And he said, don't you understand that if I line you up on one side of the field, they're just going to run the other way. If you're in the middle, then you can make all these plays. <laughs> and when he said that, I was thinking, oh, sense. yeah, yeah. I was thinking, okay, let's do this. Right? <laughs> so he taught me. He was the first one to teach me. Just keep your eyes on the guards. And the guards will take you to every single play. And... Believe it or not, I, I made great plays, but I, didn't, I still didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> in my senior year, there was a game, Bishop Stang, and Jim Reed saw that, saw that game. And there was a play where I got cut, and I fell down. And I got up, and I ran back. The, I ran the wrong direction at the beginning of the play. I got up, ran the opposite direction, downfield. It was like 50 yards downfield. I caught this kid from behind. I am not fast. I ended up catching him. It made me look like a superstar. <laughs> and the guy who saw that play, Jim Reed, he was a defensive coordinator at the University of Richmond. He, I remember he, he couldn't believe what he saw. He's like, that, I don't, you don't see that every day. You just don't see it. And after the game, he said, my name is Jim Reed. I'm a defensive coordinator at the University of Richmond, and I want to offer you a full scholarship to the University of Richmond. Which was funny because... Coach Reed will never admit, well, he told me this story personally, but he did not have the okay to do that. 
and he had to convince the head coach, Jim Marshall, that you really want this Mark Magna kid. And Jim Marshall said, that's great. Where's the film? Let's see a film on him. He's like, you know, I stuck the film in here, but I can't find it. <laughs> what he was doing was protecting me because there really wasn't tremendous film. There really, I wasn't you yeah. know, doing anything stellar. But he said, we really want him. Everyone wants this kid. And he <laughs> kind of made it up because no one wanted me. Yeah. Like, this was the only school that offered me. And then when Richmond offered me, then Northeast had offered me. And they're two smaller schools. But when Coach Reed came to my house, he asked the guys out front. There's some guys out front always hanging in the corner. We, now we lived in Rolling Green, which was the north end of the Fall River. And uh, a housing development where kind of a rough neighborhood. And he said, I'm looking for Mark Megna. Do you know where Mark Magna lives? And they said, nah, man, we never heard of Mark Magna. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I went outside. I said, I waved to him, and I said the guy's first names, whoever they were. And Coach Reed looked at him and said, I thought you didn't know who Mark Magna was. They just, like, put their heads <laughs> down and turned around because they didn't know who he was. Yeah. He came in the house. Coach Reed's that coach that recruits and owns the living room. He's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, Coach Reed, how tall is Coach Reed? Five, let's call him five six so he doesn't kill us. Yeah. <laughs> but he's like seven feet tall, man. He's so powerful. And when he shakes your hand, he grabs your hand, he pulls you off your feet, and he's got this presence, and he's just an incredible man. He's just an incredible person, big heart. There's very few people like this in the world. I don't think there's anyone like this in the world, to be honest with you. When he was in that living room, my mother was ready to play football. <laughs> like, she was so motivated. And when he left... She was like, you're going to Richmond. He said, your son is going to be a captain in Richmond. Your son is going to be an all-conference player in Richmond. Your son is going to be a, uh, you know, all-American in Richmond. And I said, and I'm going to play in the NFL. <laughs> It'll never forget this. He didn't say anything. He kind of looked at me and said, yeah, well. He was scared because he knew that that was my dream. And he didn't want to say that's not possible. But he knew it was very unlikely. So he didn't know what he was going to do. Right. He said, I don't want to smash your dreams down, but I always want to be realistic. And I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, right? He said, because I'm going to go in your living room. I'm going to make you a promise. And it turns out, I told Randy this before, he told that to every single kid he recruited. He told every single <laughs> kid that they were going to be a captain, they were going to be an all-conference player, they were going to be an all-American and I said, Coach, when I found that out later on after I graduated from Richmond, I said, you said that to everyone? He looked at me and he said, of course I did. I said, well, how could you say that to everyone? He said, Mark, I don't recruit kids unless I believe that they can achieve those things. Mm. What they do with their opportunity is up to them. Mm. He said, you made the most of your opportunity. And then it made perfect sense. That's awesome, yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, so now we're, we're in Richmond. You decide on Richmond. Right? I didn't have a choice. Okay. <laughs> Richmond decided on me. Mama Magna decided yeah. that's where you're going. Yeah. Okay. How's life changed? Well, life changed. First of all, I could have went to, you know, after Richmond offered me Northeastern, said if Jim, they respected Jim Reed very much, they said we, maybe we should offer this kid. Mm -hmm. Northeastern was close. And it's interesting because Northeastern said, you know, you're going to be a starter here. You're going to play right away. You probably play as a freshman. <laughs> Jim Reed didn't say anything like that. Hmm. Like he said, you're going to earn it. You know, you won't play until this happens. We have a lot of great athletes. So what happened was I talked to the Northeastern coaches on Thursday. 
I left to take a trip to Richmond on Friday. I went to Richmond. I thought I was going to Northeastern on Thursday. Really, I did. After the trip to Richmond and spending time with Coach Reed, I was like, man, this place is incredible. I have to come here for several reasons. Now, I grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts. City, buildings, not a lot of greenery. University of Richmond campus is like immaculate. I mean, it's incredible. Give it's us in- a tour. What's it like? It's yeah. It's um. We we laugh because there's someone always working on the uh, what do you call it? The landscaping. Yeah, the landscaping. I mean, all yeah. day. I mean, it's it's immaculate. It's beautiful. All the buildings are like historical buildings. They're old. It's a small campus. There's only at the time there was only twenty eight hundred undergrads. It was the number one private university in the South by U.S. and World Report. It was just beautiful. Everything all the way to the cafeteria and the athletes used to joke about it. It was incredible. They were serving steaks and all these incredible things. And the food was like rated number one in the country. It was. I was like, I can't. This is, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. Like, forget about school or university. I've never seen anything like this. Just the beauty. You're telling me I can go to school here for free <laughs> and I can enjoy all this? It was like a vacation. Wow. And coming from forward and going there, I'm like, I have to go to Richmond. And that couple with playing for a guy named Jim Reed, who he was like Tony Robbins, man. He made you believe in yourself. And he believed in you and what his goals for you and his standards were so high. And the people that he was recruiting, he was building something incredible. And you wanted to be a part of that. So... Sunday, I'm flying back to uh, you know Massachusetts, and on the ride back from the airport, I'm thinking, I don't know how I'm going to tell the Northeastern coaching staff, because mm-hmm. when I left, I told them, guys, I know I'm going to Northeastern, but I promised Coach Reed I'd take this trip, so I'm going to take this trip, and now um, I have to tell them I'm going to Richmond. Mm-hmm. So it's no big deal, right? Because I'm going to make the phone call, and I'm going to tell them. It's going to be easy, because I'm telling them over the phone. Right. Except for Monday morning, the entire Northeastern coaching staff walked into the building. Wow. And I had to tell all of them to their face that I wasn't going to their school. And then I had to tell them why. So you're 17 years old, and you have to tell the entire coaching staff why their school isn't good enough, and you're going to go to this other school. And What'd I'm, you tell them? I'm no one. I'm not a big-time recruit. I'm just a young kid who hopefully is going to do something at a small school. I told them, I love the campus. I don't want to go to school around here. <laughs> and when I certainly did at the beginning, right. I want to get away. I want to play for the Spiders. It's special to me. I just felt like it's a place where I need to be. Mm. So before I step in that room, I, I told Mr. Fitzgerald, the assistant principal, I said, I'm scared. What am I going to say? He said, you're going to look me in the eye and tell him the truth. And I said, I don't even know what to tell him. He said, tell me you want to go to Richmond because of what you experienced this past weekend. I told them that. They were upset. They said, you know, Mark, they immediately started bashing Richmond. They said I was making a horrible decision. Um, that day, they faxed the depth chart of Richmond and the depth wow. chart of Northeastern, showing that Richmond had all freshman and sophomore starters, and I was never going to play there. And then they said, you would have played immediately in Northeastern, making a huge mistake. Wow. They were pulling out all the tactics. Oh, man, I was feeling guilty Jeez. as can be. I was thinking, man, this is I'm making a bad decision. I don't know. And <laughs> Mr. Vichero said, you're making a great decision. The only reason they're doing that is because they're upset that they lost and Honestly, I was very happy with my decision. Man, so he must have played a big role in that because for a 17-year-old kid to make that decision against the tactics that they were using to really try to convince you, I mean, it had to take a stronger role for someone to step in and be like, no, Mark, you're making a good choice. 
that's that's pretty intense. I think between Mr. Fitzgerald and my mother, it was interesting because uh, my the assistant principal, Vincent Fitzgerald, and my mom, they wanted me to stay home, but they knew I had to get out of there. Yeah, like, that was really important, and they had to part with their baby, so to speak. And honestly, it was just an incredible experience. And yeah. then you get to the University of Richmond, and it was a special place. I was struggling immensely because I wasn't the student I thought I was. Yeah. I went to Durfee, and, and people at Durfee pretty much got students by because they were athletes, which is absolutely the worst thing to do because now I'm underprepared to be at a school like this. And we talk about public speaking all the time, and it's the number one fear over death, right? Yeah. And at Richmond, like 80% of your grade is class participation. Like You have to stand up. You have to talk in front of everyone every day in every class mm. I've never done that never like I wasn't comfortable at all with that I wasn't comfortable sitting down quiet let alone standing up talking yeah. so you can imagine what my GPA was like I, I was struggling miserably as a freshman and I had a lot a lot a lot of stress I was failing miserably on the football field I wasn't doing anything special I was not doing well in any phase of college life sports or in the classroom and I was struggling a great deal it was hard so how'd you adapt? And I know that that's, you know, I can see now why some of the pro athletes that you've had on the show, how that's like a big conversation for you. You know, what was college life like? How'd you adapt to the classroom? Um, the lunchroom is one that you always ask about. And so I know that those played major roles, but how did you adapt? How, you know, obviously you graduated from Richmond, so you were able to overcome some of those obstacles. But what was that like? What'd you have to do? Well, we talk about stress and being in a high-stress environment. Now, it might be a cakewalk, and other people may enjoy it, but if you don't excel in a classroom and you're a nervous person and that's something that's always been an obstacle in your life, well, then you really start to see, you know, what you're made out of, you know, what someone's true salt is. So I remember I called my mother and I told her, I said, Mom, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm not meant for this. This is really hard for mm -hmm. me. Like, this is too hard. And she said... What do you mean? You're doing great in football. And I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'm not even playing. And it's pretty embarrassing. I don't. They don't even think of me as a person who's going to be involved. Mm. I said, in the classroom, I'm failing miserably. And I don't know anything. All the kids in my class are like the number one students from their high schools. And I'm certainly not. And the teachers make fun of me and call me stupid. Wow. Even in, in yeah. Richmond, wow. Yeah. I mean, they were saying that that's a ridiculous answer, that's stupid, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense. They knew you were athletes, and some teachers were friends of the program, which means they really wanted to try to help develop you. Other yeah. ones were resentful that you were there, really. So she said, you know what, Mark? I, I said, Mom, I, I just don't want to be here. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. And it was dead silence on the phone. And I remember she said, and I'll never forget this. She said, you can come home tomorrow and I'll never ask you about this ever again I want you to be happy and I want you to be comfortable with your life but she said I promise you one thing if you come home right now you're going to resent this every day for the rest of your life mm. and you will never forgive yourself and this is my mom who wasn't even like barely graduated from high school but yeah. she knew that if you don't do this you will regret it and you will kick yourself in the butt every day for the rest of your life yeah. so you just can't give up I'd love to tell you that you can. It's going to be great, Mark, but it will not be great if you give up. Yeah. And that's kind of molded your own personal brand. Yeah. I know that um, yeah. you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. In that time, you know, I know that your mom had uh, sent you a letter that, yeah. you know, you still, 
you still have to this day and you you share that as like i said as your your personal brand Great. to uh help motivate and inspire others to you know kind of just like you did is just hold on during those times and just keep moving forward or like the navy seals say you know quit tomorrow you know so they always keep that in the back of their right. mind if you're going to quit look get through this and then if you want you can quit tomorrow which inevitably you never really quit because then you think well i got past that yeah. why not more yeah. so can you talk a little bit about that letter what that meant to you and how that's become your own personal brand absolutely um so I remember, you know, being on the phone. I hung up that phone. I was pretty depressed. I had a really rough night, and I was really down on myself. I was struggling. I was, uh, I was definitely an emotionally fragile uh, young person, and I was thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't want to let my mother down. I'm certainly not going back home, but I don't, I don't know. I don't have what it takes to be here. So I'm stuck in a between a rock and a hard place. And I said, I kept telling myself, you're just going to go out there. You're going to do everything you can. You're just going to give every ounce of energy in your body. You're going to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And that's all you're going to do. And don't worry about anything. Mm -hmm. I kept telling myself, because I was such a worrywart, nervous kid, don't worry about it. Just go out there and do it. And I tell people that all the time, and they don't believe me. They're like, yeah, but look, you're developed. You're an athlete. I said, dude, you have no idea the amount of personal struggles I've had. I have them. We all have them. But how we can negotiate those small obstacles and how we can bounce back from these just demoralizing moments where a teacher calls you an idiot or stupid or and coaches are saying that you suck and you can't play and you have no athletic ability and you're doing everything wrong how you react to those things that's how you find out who you are mm-hmm. and in that night so to speak there's two places where i really found myself it was the long hours and the extra practices by myself and basically that night after that long conversation with my mother and I just went after and I started to push myself and I started to like say, you know what, I'm not going to let her down. This may not be, be about mm-hmm. me, but I'm not going to let her down because she worked her whole life just to give get opportunities for her two boys. She sacrificed mm-hmm. everything and the least I could do is not give up, right? Mm-hmm. So she sent me a letter in the mail I received a few days later. My mom was a riot because she would always send me letters and things in the mail. Not regular mail. Like, she wanted me to get it next day. <laughs> so she was like, priority mail, like, extra priority. <laughs> so I get this package, this envelope, U.S. Uh, Express Service or something. I open it, and it's a letter. And it's a long letter she wrote me. It was a beautiful letter just saying, you know, I love you so much. You've worked so hard in your life. You have something special in you. And you can't see it now, but the only thing you need to do is not give up. You can do this. There's something really special going on here. You know, I'm crying, Lewis. I'm very emotional. And I'm like, wow, this is like... When you talk about sticking out your chest and feeling like you just got an energy shot, I just got an energy (laughs) shot. I'm like, I'm not giving up. And at the end, there was a little post that said, dream big, never quit. And I know know my mom didn't make up the term dream big, never quit. But she probably read it somewhere and it hit her. And she's like, I'm going to send this to Mark and he's going to love this. And... I certainly did. I took that off. I put that on my uh, in my locker first because it was still season. And every right before I went to practice, I would look at it. After practice, I would look at it. In the off season, I put it on my mirror. So when I went to bed, I would look at it right above my ceiling. I put it on my mirror. I put it. I kept moving it around. I was looking at it, staring at it. Dream big, never quit. I'm not going to give up. This is going to be my life. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to give it. And I would just revisit it. i kiss my fingers. i touch the letter. I would do it nonstop. And I'm not going to give up. I'm going to give it all the ounce, all the energy. I'm going to just be this motivated, enthusiastic lunatic. And that's <laughs> it. 
and that was it it motivated the hell out of me and I said you know what I can do this this is not hard everyone gets to a place Lewis where they're this is so challenging this is so hard and I don't know if I can do it I'm just I was just tired of playing I call it playing possum I was tired of being timid I was tired of being an introvert I was just tired of being that kid that is nothing special and I said you know what my thing's going to be energy and I am going to outwork everyone hmm. like everyone like nice. go to practice after practice go to study hall after study hall go back to the weight room after the weight room go back on the field it didn't matter I was doing things that people thought I was a lunatic they didn't know why I was doing it and it was stupid and it's a waste of time and he would say, you're crazy, it's not making sense, it's too much, you got to chill out. And I was thinking, I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. It may not have made sense to them, but it made sense to me because I didn't want to leave one stone unturned. Yeah. So you get this letter from your mother. At this point now, you're highly motivated. You know, her words are fueling your actions. So now, what do you do next? Where's that turning point, uh, both in the classroom and on the field, where things start to move in the direction that you obviously hoped it would? It was never like snap your fingers and everything's cool, ever. I remember academically first, it was always a struggle. But I remember (laughs) Coach Reed um, walked me into study hall one night. And he walked me into this room. And there was a gentleman sitting down in the chair. He was a really, he was a bigger gentleman, heavyset guy. He said, this is Mr. Barry Gibral. This is going to be your tutor. And he's going to help you. And I remember sitting down, and Mr. Gibral was this highly intelligent local teacher from Godwin High School who was the National Teacher of the Year wow. or something like that. He just had an incredible presence, and he was, you know, just had an amazing energy with young people and students. And he said, uh, Hey, Mr. Magna, sit down. I heard a lot about you, son. And he had this southern twang accent, and he said, uh, oh, you're going to be just... I said, I'm really struggling, Mr. Gearwell. I really need a lot of help. He said, oh, you're going to be just fine. This is easy. you just got to learn to talk like the teachers here. you got to impress, <laughs> impress the teachers, and I'll show you exactly how to do that. Huh. This guy was like my guardian angel. He was incredible. Um, I think between Coach Reed and Jeff Hansen, they really filled uh, Mr. Gearwell in on what I needed help with, and... I sat down with this guy every night from 6.30 to almost 10 o'clock at night. Every night. And my GPA went from like a 1.6 and I graduated with like a 3.1 or something like that. All because of him. I mean, all because of him. I mean, this guy in his spare time would read like he was into the great Gatsby and F. Scott Fitzgerald and he loved everything poetry, English, uh, you know, uh, everything you could possibly think of, he had covered it and he had extensive knowledge of it. So when I got an assignment, I brought it to him. He said, oh, this is easy. I remember handing him books. He, he, would hand, he would hold the book and he would just stem through it, flipping pages. And then he handed me the book and I said, what are you doing? He says, oh, I just read it. I said, what do you mean you just read it? He was a speed reader. Wow. He read the whole book. It was like 90 pages. He said, give me 20 minutes. And he went, And he said, so let's talk about this. And I was like, that took me a month. (laughs) He read it in less than 20 minutes. I couldn't believe it. I never forget. I'll never forget that. So anyway, Mr. Gibral was an incredible person. I just want to obviously thank him. He was 
just a special man, helped me a great deal. Still keep in contact till this day. And in football, you know, I was scheduled to be a linebacker. I'll never forget the day Jim Reed called me in his office and he said, Mark, I wanted you to uh, know that from now on you're going to be spending time with the defensive lineman. And I remember asking him why. He said, because you're going to be a defensive lineman. I said, yeah, coach, but I'm a linebacker and I play linebacker, so I'm just wondering why I would be spending time with them. He said, well, you're not a linebacker anymore. You're going to be a defensive lineman for the University of Richmond. Wow. And I remember thinking that, you know, <laughs> that's the worst idea ever. <laughs> and he said, he said, no, you're going to be great at it. And he said, get out of my office. <laughs> so I was thinking, that's so messed up. That's so wrong. But he was smart because we had some really great guys at linebacker, and we didn't have a bunch of defensive linemen, but he was trying to get every single person on the field. And he probably thought I wasn't a good enough athlete to be a linebacker, which was fine. Defensive end, I knew one thing I was going to get the pass rush, and I was obsessed with rushing the passer. So he said, you're going to play defensive line, we're going to give you a helmet, and when they hike that ball, all you're going to have to do is take a fast step off the ball and get in the backfield and cause havoc. And I was thinking, that's great. I don't have to know how to do anything else. That's all I have to do. <laughs> that I love that. It didn't turn around till I was introduced to University of Richmond defensive line coach Joe Cullen. And Joe Cullen, I, every time I give a speech, and Randy can attest to this, if you've ever seen, I'm trying to get the listeners familiar with who Joe Cullen was and what his personality was like. If you've ever watched college basketball in the 80s or 90s, if you've ever heard of a basketball coach named Bobby Knight, he was exactly like Bobby Knight, but he made Bobby Knight look soft. Wow. If you've ever seen the movie Whiplash, the teacher in Whiplash, Insane. he was exactly like that. He was exactly like that. He would run you into the ground. He would work you over. He would make you throw your helmet. He would make you quit. He would make you cry. He would make you throw up. He wanted to get down into it. He wanted you to find yourself out there. You were going to laugh. You were going to cry. You were going to give up. You were going to think you're worthless. And he was going to build you back up from the ground up and make you feel like you were superhuman. And then when you got in that field, there was no thinking. It was automatic. Mm. And he was taking kids that no one else wanted. The, the linebackers coach didn't want him. The fullback coach didn't want him. The tight end coach didn't want him. He was taking all the misfits and making, turning them into all-conference All-Americans. And he did it a lot. And that's when it started to turn around for me. Like he would just create these scenarios. He'd say, you're rushing the passer, and I need you to get by these two guys. And he'd give you the technique, and he'd show you what to do. And you'd do it, and you'd kind of half-ass it, and it wouldn't be anything special. And then he'd walk over to you. He said, let me explain to you how this works. There's someone on the other side of this door, and they have a knife to your mother's throat. And he would create these crazy, lunatic scenarios where he would get you emotional. And you always, almost, you're in a manic state. Yeah. You are in a manic state. So you're playing, like, on the edge, and you're screaming, and you're crying, and you're upset. And he's like, perfect, you're doing a great job. <laughs> And it's probably, it's absolutely not healthy, but when you want to talk about productive, yeah. people are like, you can't block four guys like this because they're all out of their mind. And that's the way it was. So that's when it started to turn around, when I started to buy in and accept that style of coaching because it was very hard. You can't coach yeah. everyone like that because some guys just decided to go home. Why do you think he was able to tap into you that way to kind of almost... I don't throw know. Throw you into the fire <laughs> via fear. I used to say that all the time. I said, Coach, it's not fair. You don't coach them like that. You coach me like that. And he'd look at me and he'd say, that's because I know you can handle it. They can't. 
and we talked about this a lot with some of the NFL guys I've had on the show. When a coach is coaching you hard, that's because you're an integral part of what they're doing. When they stop coaching you, then you have a problem. When they stop coaching you, that means they stopped investing in you. And that means they no longer have faith in you. And that means you're not a part of the system anymore. The harder they coach you, the more they expect out of you. And they're doing it because they believe you can handle it. That you're a leader. You're being responsible. And you are a major cog in the system. Mm. So I don't know why. I think he was from Massachusetts. I was from Massachusetts. Coach Reed was from Massachusetts. They knew where I grew up. They knew that... It's kind of like a fend for yourself, uh, survivor mentality, and let's just punish this kid and beat him down and see what happens. So are you seeing that from hindsight, or did you pick up on that right away when you were in the situation understanding, like, this guy just believes in me? Or were I you never think, said that. So was it a matter of, like, I, I, I want to impress this guy, or I can't mess up? No, I hated his guts. Huh. No, I hated his guts completely, and I told him that several times. And I said, I used to swear at him. He used to swear at me. He used to throw me out of practice. He told me to uh, to get out of here. He told me to go back to the locker room. He said, you don't deserve to play. I mean, I got suspe- <laughs> I got blocked. I remember getting blocked in the back and turning around and elbowing an offensive lineman. And he threw me out of practice for two practices. I wasn't allowed to practice. He said I wasn't worthy. Mm. But he he knew every button to push. And... I didn't. I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't like it. I quit several times. I threw my helmet. I quit. I gave up. And every time, I remember. I wrote one time. I wrote him a letter and said, "I'm not going to be like him. I don't want to be like him. I bust my ass, and he doesn't appreciate it. And I'm giving everything I have, and I will be a special player, but not because of him. Mm. <laughs> but he yeah. took me to where I needed to be. Yeah." You know, you mentioned uh, Whiplash earlier, and there's a scene in the movie later on where he says, um, who is the name of the Charlie drummer? Parker. So he says, you know, are you afraid that you might deter the next Charlie Parker? And he says no, because the, the next Charlie Parker would never be deterred. Yeah. Which is I know it very well. And by the way, that's why I keep referencing the movie, because the similarities are so strong. Mm-hmm. They're exactly A lot the of same. emotional ties there. Oh, he would say... I'm going to smash you down and I'm going to make this incredibly hard for you and I'm going to create this crazy, chaotic environment so when you get into the game, you're going to look over at me and say, this is the easiest thing I've ever done in my life because practice was so incredibly hard. They would throw two offenses at you. You know, it was crazy hot in Richmond. He would make sure that the water coolers were empty. He would make sure (laughs) that everything was not going your way. So when you got in the game, it's cool. I can, whatever. Turn over, let's go. Back in the field. Uh, no water, I don't need it. You know, uh, we we a penalty against us, doesn't matter. Like, he made you so resilient because he created this set of circumstances that was so ridiculously yeah. awful and unforgiving that everything else was a cakewalk. High-stress environment, for sure. Constant high-stress in everything. He wanted you to leave practice, take two minutes to shower, run to D-Hall, run to uh, study hall, don't be late. If anyone's late, the entire team would be behind you. You were constantly under stress. And you had to learn how to function in high stress. I was talking about with Randy the other day. I tell my wife all the time, babe, I don't want to rush now. She's like, what do you mean you don't want to rush? I've been rushing my whole life. <laughs> you know how often I get to sit? She laughs at me because sometimes I eat a meal in the car. I eat a meal standing up in the, in the kitchen and I'm moving around. I'm doing things and I'm writing and I'm doing something and I'm active with my hands and I'm talking to my friend on the phone and I'm trying to work something yeah. out with the trainer in the business. I never get to sit down and have a meal. That's like my joy. 
So now I, I don't want to rush. Yeah. I purposely do things because I don't want to be rushed because I functioned for the last 30 plus years rushing. Yeah. Functioning in high stress environments. So. Wow. It's funny. You know, you say that and I'm thinking back to, you know, the years that I know you now and it's anytime I come over the house, it's like you're wiping the floor. I'm like, Mark, the, the floors are immaculate. <laughs> this guy's wiping the counters. I'm like, there's there's nothing on the counter. Yeah. Um, and the only time we actually sit is either right before a workout and that might be a 10 minute sit down or when we go to dinners and that's, right. that's pretty much it. So that's that's interesting thinking back to that. Yeah. So is that all four years you've got this guy on your back through all four years of of your time at richmond yeah it was incredible like he sounds like a great time yeah <laughs> it's like i i listen i don't i have so much respect for the military but i always constantly think back to like west point when you get to west point or a naval academy i think one of the academies as a freshman you know the rule right you have to run everywhere you're hmm. not allowed to walk anywhere the whole year that's intense, at all yeah. So Coach Reed, I remember when we get in from practice late, Coach Reed and Coach Cullen would come in the locker room and they said, okay, I want everyone's pads off. I'm timing you right now. You have two minutes to shower. Go. Pads off, shower, dry, get your clothes on. You have two minutes. Wow. And you're like, that's not even possible. Said, well, we're going to sure as hell going to try. <laughs> right? So he was constantly making sure that you could function in every set of circumstances. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds stupid. But I'll tell you something. The kids that came out of that program – are big time. We have kids that are incredibly successful in film. We have doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, financial people, people who are extremely successful. Every single kid that came out of that program is incredibly successful in whatever field they chose. Every single kid. Yeah. So there's a reason for that. He yeah. wasn't focused on winning. He was focused on developing young men. Yeah. The winning took care of itself. Yeah. He said, if I can develop young men and I can teach these lessons, we're going to win a lot. Yeah. I'm not worried about that. And, and a lot did. Of, yeah, a lot of times when you hear about people who are unsuccessful, it's it's one of those they've got great ideas, they've got all these things going for them, but at the end of the day it's paralysis by analysis. So this guy didn't even give you time to think about it. He was like just do it. Yeah. That's he intense. doesn't want yeah, he doesn't want anyone like if you were a thinker, you you know, one of these super intelligent <laughs> young kids who wanted to process everything, you you wouldn't have a chance yeah. because he he didn't want you to think about anything. He wanted you to react. Mm. And he was teaching you. He did that through repetition. Repetition is a mother, mother of learning. He wanted you to constantly do it. You know, he... I remember one time, do you remember when he woke us up? He said, we're going to have practice just because I know studying is very important. So I don't want to get in the way of that studying. So tomorrow morning, everyone's going to be here at 5 a.m. We're going to start practice at 6 a.m. We're going to practice from 6 to 8 from now on in the morning. Just to make sure we get it out of the way. And I remember thinking, that's insane. We're going to have full contact practices starting at 6 a.m.? That's not even going to work. <laughs> it might even be at 5.30. But he did it. And whatever it was, he was just trying to create these crazy, uncomfortable, yeah. very unforgiving environments. That's what he did. Yeah. That's crazy. But you can tell how it kind of led to your success. So let's talk a little bit about that. We're moving toward closer to your senior year. At what point do you realize that NFL is even a, a possibility? I... You know, I said it early, but I never really thought about it. I kind of set my mind to be a, a solid college player, and I wanted to be very good at defensive line play. And it was easy to do that under the direction of Joe Cullen, who's now the defensive line coach for the Baltimore Ravens. Wow. And he's been all over the NFL. He's known for being an outstanding defensive line coach. But I started to look 
across the stat board of the players in the country with sacks, tackles, and tackles for loss. And I was a nose guard and a three technique that had 14 sacks and over 100 tackles, and I had like 25 tackles for loss. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, this guy is scheduled and projected to go in the NFL in one of the top three rounds, and my stats are better than his, and I'm played against the same competition. I'm thinking, if he can do it, I can definitely do it. And then I remember one practice, there were three guys standing on the side. I think they were from the Buffalo Bills. Oh, no, they were from Blesto Scouting. Remember Blesto? Blesto was a scouting, uh, you know, uh, they were a piece of a scouting company, and they were standing on the sidelines of practice. And I remember looking over at practice, and I remember that they were staring at me. And I remember thinking, who are they staring at? Who are they staring at? Who are they watching? Who are they here to see? You know, my teammates were like, you're an idiot. They're here to see you. And that's kind of when it was like, wow, this is, that made it real. Because hmm. I never thought it. I was the yeah. last, I wasn't a big believer in myself until it was right in front of my face. And that kind of made, confirmed it. Like, hey, wake up. You know, this, this, this is very possible. This yeah. is real. Like, this can really happen. Yeah, you know, you mentioned early that you said, um, right before when you started is, is I just wanted to be a great college player. I wanted to focus on being a great lineman. And uh, that's something you still t say till this day is focus on the task at hand. So I want to give you a stat just to kind of put things into perspective of a college player even dreaming about the NFL. And the stat goes like this. There's out of the in the NCAA, they ran a uh, statistics in the NCAA. They ran statistic two years ago. And what they come came up with was there's 72,000 football players and out of those 72,000 players only 16,000 or approximately around 16,000 are eligible for the draft and out of that only about 256 make it which comes out to about 1.6 percent but how do you guys respond to that at the college level you know even having those conversation of what's possible next what's that like as a college athlete you know, it's interesting. I heard uh, this was discussed recently. I heard it. They said, you know, a lot of pro athletes, when they finish, they go broke. And the reason they go broke is because they carry with them the same mentality that they had coming out of in high school, in college, in the NFL that, you know what? I am an outlier and I'm special and I'm going to make it when all the odds are stacked against me. So when they post athletic career they do these investments where they're risky but they think that they can make it happen so they carry with them the same mentality right that you know my whole life is a long shot right this is a long shot investment and i can still make it in this when of course you would have to modify that personality you would have to modify that approach and that behavior but the reason that most guys make it is because they've already decided that they will mm. There's a huge difference between athletes that say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. That means nothing. Bo Jackson, you know who Bo Jackson is? Of course. When Bo Jackson was at Auburn, he had two goals. Uh, the first goal was he was going to play Major League Baseball. He was going to be an all-star. And the first goal was he was going to be the number one player in the NFL draft. You know how many people he told? No, no. one. Hmm. He told no one. At the end, he told his girlfriend and no one else. Oh. Because... He was a guy that 
said, I'm going to go out and do this, and I'm going to defy the odds. And he already made up his mind that he was going to do it, regardless of the circumstances and the scenarios that he was going to be placed in. The guys that end up making it, you try to figure out, are they the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the best athlete, the best all around, they have the best football acumen, they're intelligent, they have a high IQ, they have staying power. Yeah, it's all those things, but they've already decided in their mind Hmm. that it doesn't matter how much work, torment, torture, pain, hardship, difficult times, stress, chaos, crap that they have to deal with, it's all good, let's do this. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah, that's so interesting because if you think about it, you got those guys that worry, right, whether or not they're going to make it. And then that keeps you from focusing on the task at hand, which is win the day or, you know, be the best lineman you could be or be the best college player you can be, right? And I think that's where that kind of paralysis by analysis takes place. So I think it's pretty, I think that is important to be so committed that you say like this is it there is no plan b right um so now how does the process go how do you find out you're going to the nfl at what point do you realize this could be real tell us a little bit about that you don't i mean when i finished uh when i finished at richmond i you know fortunate enough to play in a team that was the probably the worst team in college football when our freshman class arrived when we left we were nine and two at one point we were the number one ranked team in one double a we had a lot of success a bunch of players won awards it was an incredible season we got a lot of attention and then the scouts started to come around and talk to players and then i started to say wow like this is possible and now i was at the point where i was big but i wasn't big enough to be an nfl defensive lineman so now they said maybe he could be an outside linebacker inside linebacker Hmm. which was real because that's the size i was of a real nfl linebacker which is what I always wanted to be in the first place. Yeah. It's interesting how it comes full circle. And I remember I was invited to the Hula Bowl. And I was invited as a favor to another call, coach who was on the committee. And he said, this kid should be in the Hula Bowl, which is one of the two college all-star games. It was the, uh, the Senior Bowl and the Hula Bowl. The Senior Bowl is like a real serious game. Yeah. It's crazy scouting. The Hula Bowl is like a, a serious game, but it's more of a fun game in Hawaii. It's a yeah. reward for the players who are all-stars in the country. And I was one of like four 1AA players. And I remember thinking, all these guys are going to be first and second rounders. Who were some of those guys on that team? Ricky Williams. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Rick, Ricky Williams Saying is there. something right there. I think, yeah. we, I think we're going to pass on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rick, on. Ricky, yeah, Ricky Williams was like, I remember before the game, I was playing video games with Ricky in the uh, Players Lounge. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this guy is the best, co- statistically, he's the best college running back that ever lived. He was like 5'11", 230 pounds. He had dreads. He had yeah. a big neck. He was jacked up. He was super fast. The nicest guy you've ever met. Yeah. But he was unbelievable. And he was going to be you know, one of the top ten picks. I mean, the guy was Incredible, crazy yeah. athletic. We, we had guys from Penn State. We had a lot of guys from the WAC, uh, Michigan. A lot of terrific players in, in that uh, game. But I remember thinking, well, if they're going to go, I'm going to go. I know I'm going to go. Only problem was it was from a small school. And a lot of small school guys didn't get invited to the combine. So I had to have a pro day. So I had a pro day. And... I remember the first pro day I had, maybe like 20 scouts showed up, mm. which was a lot for a small school kid. And they made me do the 225 bench test. They made me do a 40. They made me do a vertical. They weighed me. They did all these things. But because I was a small school guy, not all the teams showed up. 
So whenever a team showed up, I had to do all those things all over again. Wow. So if they showed up on Monday, I had to do the 225 bench test on Monday. If they showed up on Wednesday, I had to do it again. So you know if you're doing max reps on Monday, you're not going to be full right. strength on Wednesday. They didn't care. I remember one day Coach Reed came into the weight room. It was my third time doing the 225 test for an NFL coach that week, scout. He screamed at the scout and said, you know what's interesting? You guys are trying to get the best players, the most healthy players, and he's done it three times this week. How are you going to feel if he tears his pack? Is that good? Is that going to help? Yeah. And he screamed at him. He said, you know what? The next time he does it, we'll film it and we'll send it to you. So um, I pretty much... My thing was, I don't care who walks in. I'm going to perform every time. I don't care what my performance is like because I don't want to miss an opportunity. Right. I'm lucky enough to have him here. So I remember I worked out for everyone, every single team. And uh, it was it ended up being like six or seven times. The different coaches came in clusters. And draft day came around, and they started to rank uh, players, like linebackers. And I was projected to be, you know, a linebacker taken – uh, late in the draft and I was like man I don't even think I'm going to get drafted I don't mm. think hopefully I get an invite to camp as a free agent and you know the first day came and went I didn't even watch I'm like it's not even going to happen the second day I remember playing basketball outside the University of Richmond because I lived in the University of Richmond I actually lived in a closet with a mattress on the floor and I had a phone line and I gave all the scouts my landline just in case. Why didn't you leave Richmond during that time? Because I wanted to be close to the weight room and the track. Mm-hmm. And I was tra- I trained myself. That's the next question I was going to yeah. ask you is how, how are you preparing? Because, yeah. I mean, you work with a lot of these guys at Bomberitos and they have. Yeah, those guys you know, are amazing. Like, right. Pete, Pete's one of the best in the world. I mean, God forbid. I mean, if I had, who knows what would happen if I had something like that. There's so many great performance coaches out there. I mean, Pete can take a guy from, you know, one level to, to the next, I mean, he could take a guy who might be fifth round potential, get him in a third base space, and his times and his performance is yeah. incredible. I had nothing like and that. And now there's so much new technology, oh so many God. different ideas Tech, in training. I yeah. mean, they can t- they can Dude. knock seconds off, which is huge. Oh, huge. it's incredible. I yeah. mean, uh, but so you're training yourself at I, this yeah, point. I trained myself. All I knew is I knew all the drills. I practiced the drills every single day. I practiced forty. Practiced my start. Don't get me wrong. I brought in personally. I brought in a track coach to teach me a start. Mm. They watched my start. I mean, I watched. Uh, there was a a girl who was like a ch- Virginia champion and was like an Olympic hopeful. Like she would watch our stance. She taught us all the drills. She, wow. and we did everything. So we brought in people on our own. Like we didn't have NFL performance coaches. And were you working with coaches. a group of guys, or was it just you and a coach? It, it was mostly myself. A kid named Winston October. Um, there was a few guys that showed up here and there, but it mm-hmm. was usually Winston October. He was a defensive back on our team, and myself. And I just did the drills every single day. Wow. I mean, I remember coming in. I did the NFL Pro Shuttle. I probably did it in like a 4-6 as a freshman, which wow. is horrible. When I left, I did like a four-one-five for the NFL Scouts, which is very fast. And honestly, no technique. I mean, I figured out the technique as I went, but I did those drills 30 times a day. Hmm. I, I In my head, I had one-two touch the line. One-two, boom. One-two, three-four, boom. One-two. Like I memorized the steps, the rhythm, how many feet, where my touch was was going to be on the line, mm-hmm. how I felt, what was most optimal for me because I've done those things thousands of times. I didn't have any performance coach. I just had to keep doing it and go, this works best for me. This is going to help me. So when I got down, I didn't want to be uncomfortable. They'd say, put your hand on the line. I'm going to time you. I wanted to be comfortable. The only way for Mark to get comfortable was I had to do it thousands of times, and that's exactly what I did. Yeah. I borrowed a camera from the library, and I filmed my stuff. 
I filmed it and I watched it and I watched it over and over and over again. I watched the side view, I watched the front view, and I watched uh. it and I said, that looks bad. I'm standing up. I'm not low. I'm touching the back of the line. That's the waste of tenth of a second, whatever it is. Right. That's insane. That's insane preparation and the fact that you did it on your own, no guidance. Right, because that's that's a big excuse you hear nowadays too. If only I had this coach. If only I had you know somebody doing it for me or somebody showing me the way. So that's pretty cool listen, that you were able to do that. Listen, I got a lot of sorry to cut you off. I have a lot of uh, respect for those coaches. Some of those coaches are incredible. I was fortunate enough to learn a lot from some of those coaches. But at the same time, if you don't put in the work and you're not ultra focused, they can't do anything with you. That means nothing. You have to put in the work and beat yourself down and figure out what works best for you with the information that they're giving you. They can light a fire under you, but we talk about it all the time, that fire is gonna go out. You have to stick your head in it and you have to figure out, that's when you figure out rather yeah. how badly you wanna do this. Because all the resources are there, right? There, what, what do they say, Lewis? There, there are no people who are unresourceful. There are just people who don't use their resources. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's not about resources, it's about resourcefulness. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So let's go into the call. Yeah, we'll just title it the call and yeah, then go yeah. ahead from there. This is old school, so I'm in that uh, closet at the University of Richmond, <laughs> makeshift makeshift bedroom, and there's a phone jack we put in, one of those old push button phones. I pick up the phone rings, I pick up the phone, on the other end of the phone, the gentleman says, uh, "May I please speak with Mark Magna?" I said, "This is Mark Magna." He said, "Do you know who this is, son?" And I tell this, everyone that ever asked me about this talk call, I mean, this is the thing about it. I've been really pretty much waiting for this call my entire life, okay? I knew exactly who that was. I knew exactly what his voice was like innately. I never heard his voice talk to me. I never really even heard his voice. And I knew exactly who it was. And keep in mind, I wasn't watching the draft. I didn't know whose pick it was. I picked up the phone, and when I answered it, I said, hello. And the gentleman said, may I please speak with Mark Magna? I said, this is Mark Magna. He said, do you know who this is, son? And I said, yes, I do. And I never heard that gentleman's voice in my life. I never spoke with him in my life. I didn't know whose pick it was. And I knew it was Bill Parcells. And he said, this is Bill Parcells. I'm the head coach of the New York Jets. As if I didn't know he was the head coach in the New York Jets. <laughs> and I said, hello, Coach Barcelos. He said, how are you doing today, Mark? I said, I'm great, Coach. He said, Mark, I got a, we got this pick here, and we're considering taking you with this next pick. But first, I have a few questions for you. I said, absolutely, Coach. He said, I want to know if you can play linebacker for me. I said, absolutely, Coach. He said, can you rush the passer for me in third and long? I said, absolutely, Coach. I can certainly do that. He said, can you play special teams for me? I said, I would love to. He said, welcome to the New York Jets. And I said, thank you so much, coach. And he said, well, you earned it. And he said, stay on the line, and I'm going to put you on with someone in the front office, and they're going to make arrangements to fly you up here. I said, thank you, coach. We talked flight arrangements. I was on a plane the next day. Wait, 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 wait. You hang up the phone. Yeah, yeah. First thing you do. Listen. You just got the yeah, call of yeah, your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not like, all right, then uh, next the, day I just the, hop yeah, on the plane. Yeah, the truth right. is, like, I, that's the truth, Lewis. I actually waited for that call my entire life. And when you think about, 
you work your entire life in youth football, high school football, college football, putting up with all the pain, torture, hard work, crap, obstacles, hurdles, just for an opportunity. By the way, there's no guarantees. You still haven't made the team. Yeah. Most people don't even get the call, right? Never. Yeah. I hang up the phone, and as soon as I hung up the phone, I just started to cry. And I could cry right now thinking about it. I just started to, like, ball cry. Like, not teary-eyed, like, ball cry. And I couldn't believe it. And people say, why? You didn't believe in yourself? That had nothing to do with it. When you choose a path and you commit your entire life to something and it works out, you want to talk about a high and a euphoria? Mm. There's nothing like that. I don't I still try to chase those things I do because it was going the way I had visualized it right I didn't know if it was real I didn't know if it was going to happen but I had fulfilled a significant goal and dream in my life and I was crying and then as soon as I hung up that phone I called my mother and I told my mother I said uh Mom, I, and she said, I know, I just saw it on TV. Wow. And we were both crying, and <laughs> I, I said, uh, I can't believe I did it. And she said, uh, yeah, you did, and I always knew you could do it. And I was crying uncontrollably, and she said, I love you so much, and um, you earned it, Mark. I love you. And I was crying, crying, crying. I said, okay, Mom, I'll call you back in a little bit. I hung up the phone. I talked to my brother briefly. I hung up the phone. Then I called Mr. Fitzgerald, and I said, I did it. I said, I uh, could just got drafted by the New York Jets, and he started to cry. And it was really, really emotional. Wow. And uh, then I hung up the phone, and I just kind of sat there thinking, and, like, all that work. And when you think about it, the journey was actually just beginning. So, okay, check, college, check, draft. Now we have to make the team, which it's very unlikely you make a team, by the way. So, man, where do we start? Yeah. 